In the Reading Corner today, I'm joined by Katie Cotton. Uh, Katie has worked in the publishing industry for 10 years as an editor and a writer, and in fact has published quite a few picture books. But today we're going to be talking about Katie's debut novel, middle grade novel, and it's called The Secret of Splint Hall. It's a story that grabbed me from the very first page, uh, and I'm looking forward to talking to Katie more about it. So welcome into the Reading Corner. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, it's um, really nice to be invited, and I'm delighted to hear that you enjoyed the book. I did indeed. I mean, I love history. And let's start by talking about the history, actually, and the time period in which this is set. So you've chosen to set your story just at the end of the Second World War. Now, there are lots of books out there about the Second World War. They're either dealing with the home front and evacuation or spies. But I haven't seen much set really in that period immediately after the war. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think there are so many amazing, amazing books um, set in the Second World War. And I've read, lo- you know, loads of them. Just read Phil Earl's When the Sky Falls as an example. Uh, so I knew that, I don't want to say it had been done because people can always bring new things to it. But I think I was drawn to writing about afterwards because maybe I'm, maybe I'm just a gloomy person, but it seemed to me like there was this sense you know, looking back at it, you think of VE Day and you think of all the street parties and you think of those celebrations and and just everything being very happy. And then when you actually dig a bit deeper and you think about the fact that rationing lasted for, I think it was nine years after the war ended and all those bomb sites that weren't cleared um, and just this sense of trauma, I think, that, that lingered after the war ended and I just started thinking well what would it be like to be a child who has experienced the war and is coming to terms with it Um, and that was really what drew me to that period. Mm, Really interesting so I was born in 1960 which is 15 years after the war and growing up in London those bomb sites were still not cleared and you would walk past houses and you would see half of a you would just see the end of somebody's room with all the fireplaces and the wallpaper because half of the tenement had been knocked down but some of it was left standing so 15 years earlier when you are writing tell us a little bit what you found out from your research what would it have been like yeah well it's it's funny that you should say that because my dad was growing up in the 60s in London and he's got exactly the same stories, you know, and playing on bomb sites. <laughs> and he was telling me because he's actually a hairdresser and he did a photo shoot on a bomb site in the East End in the 80s. So some of them just didn't get cleared for so long. And it's mm. you just don't think about it, you know, and it's like that that sort of physical memory, I suppose. Mm. I must just say the, the uh, shelters in the grounds mm. we had those in our school and they became yeah. part of our playground equipment you know running over the shelters we thought was uh, great fun well that's actually so yeah so I'll, I'll go back to to what I found out about after the second world war but just to say first of all that another thing that really inspired this story was that I had an air raid shelter in my garden oh. when I was growing up and it wasn't an Anderson one it was like a, a quite an odd 
sort of square box one and it was half set into the ground and it had this corrugated iron roof and it had a rope swing in it which for people who have read the story will will know that's in, that has made it into to the book it was not very nice in there it was full of rubbish and spiders and probably some mice and it was really dark and horrible but me and my brothers just loved playing in it I think because it was this place of sort of danger and then when I was older when when you're older you start thinking well, what would it have been like to be a child actually sheltering down there from from bombs and everything so yeah so that definitely played a big part in the genesis of the story and then when I started researching I I read a lot of diaries they were the things that really brought it to life for me so Nella Last for example who's a very well-known second world war diarist and she wrote all through the war but then also afterwards to sort of 1950 and what I was struck with was actually how little her life materially changed you know from being in wartime to after wartime because she was a housewife and she was very focused on you know what she could get at the shop that day um, and obviously food was still still really tight and I think that's that's part of what fed into that idea that perhaps things didn't get better for, for a long time um, and what that might have been like to to deal with. And of course, your story is set in a stately home or a big, you know, a big mansion. It is a stately home, really. Yeah. And there were huge changes going on there as well. Mm, There were. Yeah, exactly. So I think before this, I mean, I'm not a historian, but from what I researched before the Second World War, the class structure was still fairly rigid and there were these huge Downton Abbey type houses with an upstairs downstairs vibe and people knew their place and the second world war really shook that up because of course a lot of these houses were requisitioned so I think they were seen as public property almost for the first time where they never had been before and also a lot of people who worked in those houses left to to join the war effort so they might have gone into the Wrens or the Land Army, you know, if they're women or factories, that kind of thing, and gained an independence that you just didn't get in service. And so it was a struggle, I think, to to get workers back into those big houses after the war um, because people had seen a different way of life. And there's a very, there's something that's very equalising about war. You know, if you're being bombed, it doesn't matter whether you're a duchess or you're a milkman. It, you're, you're a person at the end of the day so I think I think that really changed people's minds and also just from a practical perspective it became increasingly hard to just make the costs work with those big houses and in the 50s 60s 70s you hear stories of people just selling off bits of, of, of land to try and make ends meet so I found that side really fascinating as well. Mm. And how did you get a real sense of how those sort of houses operate because it just felt very real to me and totally <laughs> believable. Well, uh, lots of Downton Abbey research, I would say. <laughs> I mean, again, yeah, again, just reading books. Um, I've visited a lot of National Trust houses, you know, when I was a child and also more recently for for the book. But um, a lot of it is is kind of imagined, you know, what would it be like if you only had two or three servants as opposed to the army that was needed and that sense of rattling around a, a big house mm. is, is kind of imagined but I think it probably was the case for some of these big houses at least. So we've talked about the background but we haven't yet 
started to talk about the story. And the story starts when two children, Flora and Isabel, are traveling with their mother back to her ancestral home. Um, she's not lived there. Uh, she married a solicitor, uh, but they, they are having to go back because they no longer have a house to live in. And so a lot of these tensions are going to be thrust center stage. Tell us a little bit about the story at the beginning. Yeah, so um, Flora and Isabel are off, off to live with Auntie B. So Auntie B, whose mum's sister now owns Splint Hall, and they're going to live there because they've lost their home in a bombing raid. And they've also lost their father, um, who was a pilot in the war. So he's killed in active service. And you find that out very early on. And essentially, when they get to this big house, there are you know questions of, of how they're dealing with the trauma. And Isabel, in particular, has things like she has really bad headaches because of the bombing raids that they experienced. And of course, they miss their father and they miss their home and, and all of that. Um, but when they get to Spent Hall, they realise that quite quickly that it's a house that's full of secrets. Mm. Uh, and there's this horrible husband that Auntie B's got called Mr. Godfrey, who is just very nasty to his wife and, and nasty to the girls and keeps receiving mysterious visitors and packages in the night. So they're not sure what's going on there. Uh, and then there's a boy called Simon that they meet who used to work at Splint Hall before his family used to work at Splint Hall before the war. And then he keeps snooping around the air raid shelter and he goes in there and manages to avoid being discovered. And the girls don't understand how that is. Um, And they figure out that their grandfather was obsessed with dragons, even though he was a a grown man. So all of that kind of comes together. And then eventually, you know, they make a couple of very big discoveries that change how they think about Spent Hall and spark this adventure. Mm -hmm. And it has to be said, big houses just like in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, mm. because that's that's a wartime, set in wartime. Yeah. Uh, and they're sent to this house and it's this wonderful wish fulfilment of being able to explore behind closed doors and yeah. finding locked doors and forbidden places, mm. but also gardens to play mm. in. Um, and so you get all of that going on in your story in a sense of, in spite of this very restrictiveness of Mr. Godfrey, you mm. also get a great sense of freedom that these children have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are just allowed to run, run right around the house. And I would have loved that as a kid, I think. Yeah. As you said, just exploring all the nooks and crannies and the mm. hidden spaces, definitely. Now, I'd really love to hear a bit of the story. So... The context for this is that um, Isabel and Flora and their mother and auntie have gone for a day out in some caves. And I should say that Flora and Isabel don't always get on. Flora is very much the bossy older sister. And Isabel's getting a bit fed up with being told what to do and also being told that she's scared because Flora always says that she's a baby and she's she's scared. So they're down in these caves and they've been talking about how there used to be accidents when the caves were mined. And Isabel's feeling a little bit nervous about that. Isabel, stop wobbling the candle like that, Flora said, sounding exasperated. She stopped so that Isabel could catch up with her. Give it to me. No. Come on, you'll drop it and it's dangerous, Flora said, trying to grab the candle. Isabel stepped backwards, her foot twisting awkwardly in the stone. I won't drop it. Why do you always think I'm such a baby? I'm only two years younger than you. Two and a half, Flora said. 
And maybe I wouldn't treat you like a baby if you didn't act like one. She looked down the corridor. Now mum and auntie B have gone. That's not my fault. Flora let out a deep, long-suffering sigh. Look, it doesn't matter if you're scared. I know it's a bit dark and horrible down here. I know it reminds you of, of before, of at home during the raid. Just give me the candle, then we can go and find mum and auntie B and say you want to go. They won't mind. I said I'm not scared, Isabel shouted. Flora didn't say anything, but in the next moment she lunged for the candle again. Isabel jumped backwards, then turned and ran, ignoring Flora's shout behind her. She meant to run straight back outside, but they must have gone further than Isabel had realised. The corridor felt longer than before, with more twists and turns. There was a fork that Isabel didn't recognise and, without even really thinking about it, she took the left path. Her anger with her sister was making her legs go faster than normal. I'm not scared, she whispered to herself. I'm not. After a few minutes, it slowly dawned on her that it seemed to be getting darker, not lighter. There was a strange thickness in the air. Eventually, Isabel shuddered to a stop and realised she was lost. The blackness closed in. It swooped from the walls and pressed on her cheeks, her shoulders, her eyes, which Isabel promptly shut. She swallowed hard, then opened them again and took a deep breath, trying not to panic. I'll just go back the way I came, she thought. Easy. She took one slow step backwards, then stopped. She had heard something from further down the tunnel. It was a long, slow hiss, the kind of noise a balloon makes if it has a tiny hole in its neck. Almost a whistle, but not quite. Isabel gripped her candle tighter. Hello, she said, trying to be brave. Her hello bounced back to her once, twice, three times. There was silence. Then the hiss started again. It went on for a few seconds, then stopped, then started again, but a little deeper. It sounded almost like someone or something was breathing in and out. Suddenly, Isabel realised why the air felt thicker. She had expected it to be cold and damp this far underground, but it wasn't. It was warm. So warm that tiny pinpricks of sweat were breaking out on her forehead and upper lip. There was also a strange, smoky smell, but it wasn't quite wood smoke or even the smoke from the factories back at home. It had something oilier mixed in. It was almost like, Isabel thought, someone was cooking meat. I think that's a really, really good stopping point and a, a cliffhanger because now we're starting to weave in elements of what we later come to find out is a mythology connected mm. with Splint Hall. There yeah. have been hints earlier because when they arrive at Splint Hall, they see blue sparks. Yes, that's right. In yeah. the sky, like something they haven't seen before. And now they're in these tunnels. It's hot, it's smoky. Perhaps people know the direction that we're going in there because it does involve dragons. I think we can say that. <laughs> I think we can say that, yeah. <laughs> so what came first? Was it the historical story or the mythology? How did these two come together? It's really difficult to say because in my mind, they've always been very interlinked, even going back to where the story started. So I told you about the air raid shelter and I suddenly imagined one day well, what if there were some children and they discovered 
a dragon in the area shelter. And that's where the whole story started, really. So, you know, and that is dragon and Second World War. So that's mythology and history together. Mm. But I think what I wanted to do when, when exploring the period after the Second World War is, is looking at how we might think that we've won and we might think that evil has been vanquished and that everything is is okay. But to me, evil never really goes away. It just goes away for a while. And it's, it's sort of like every generation has their own fight. And it sounds a bit a bit depressing, but actually, if you know that, you also you you come to learn that it's always worth having that fight and there's always something that's worth fighting for I suppose and it's very strange now to be witnessing the war in Ukraine when we thought that war in Europe had gone gone forever and it kind of underlines that point I think but with the the mythological creature who is kind of the the evil force in Splint Hall the story is quite honest about the fact that they do just keep coming back. You know, they are this force. And I think I wanted to be honest about that with children. I think children appreciate honesty. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, the mythology in the time period, really, this sense that the war isn't over and the mythology just really go hand in hand. Mm, Quite a few things I wanted to ask you to follow up. But perhaps the first one is... How can you be honest without being cynical for a young readership? Mm. What do you do to sort of balance that? Uh, well, I think dragons are a great place to start. <laughs> I think, you know, the the sense of fun and the adventure. It, I mean, I, I think I've made this book sound quite depressing. And actually, I did get a review on Amazon that said, um, oh, the first bit of this book is very depressing. But then it does become this fun adventure and sort of famous five almost and I think it shows that if you come together if you work as a team if you look after your friends you know if you are brave then you can overcome these things and that is the truth about life I really believe that um so I'm not cynical about knowing that there will always be evil but knowing that we can always defeat evil or hoping that we can that's mm. how you avoid becoming cynical. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because thinking about the children's fantasy novels that were, were written fairly soon after the Second World War, I'm thinking, mm. of course, of Tolkien and yeah. C.S. Lewis. Now, both of those really are hev- heavily influenced by the war that they'd lived through. Yes. And I just wonder whether, you know, you you now are writing you know, a few decades after that. And I wonder whether there's something to do with the time in which you write that you, you know, at the time you were writing, clearly the Ukrainian situation had Mm. not come to light in the same way. Whereas in a way, perhaps writing at that period of time, it must have felt like, thank goodness for that, you know, good has been able to overcome. Mm. Do you think that might have something to do with it? Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think that you do sometimes need that distance to be able to to go back and creatively explore something. You know, if I'd lived through the Second World War, I probably wouldn't, the last thing I would want to do would be to write about it, I, I imagine. And it is, yeah, what you said about about um, Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis and how Mordor's inspired by the trenches, isn't it? And what he mm-hmm. what he saw there, and 
it did take him a couple of decades to actually get that. I mean, they are also the longest books ever written, or some of them, but mm-hmm. it, it took him a while to process it. So I think I think you're right. What did you most enjoy in writing this book? I loved writing about the house. Um, as you've said, it's, it was just such a gift of fun and exploration. And I really enjoyed the adventure sequence at the end I think those two things were probably the most enjoyable but Mm. I also really loved giving Mr Godfrey his um just desserts that was very satisfying I was going to say you're all powerful as an yeah I know it's amazing (laughs) yeah that that was lovely I really enjoyed that you talk about the sort of adventure sequence the book is divided into two parts Mm. um at what point did you decide to structure it in that way oh gosh I don't really remember I think um well not to give too many spoilers but there's a kind of geographical reason for it almost so you almost enter another world and so it felt very natural to do that and I I think it just you know it felt like it was all the first part is just building up and it's establishing the family relationships and themes of the book and then the finality of having a sort of second part um it also shows that they're trapped I suppose which Perhaps hopefully is not too much of a, a spoiler, but it, it just seemed to work to me. I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but it just happened very naturally, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And now that you've, I won't say moved away, because you're probably going to go back to writing picture books mm. as well. And maybe you'll do both as many writers do. But now that you've had a first novel published, do you see yourself in a different light as a writer do you feel differently about yourself as a writer yeah I mean it's been an ambition definitely for since forever really Uh, and I love writing picture books but it is I found it quite hard to go back actually because it is such a different thing you know Mm -hmm. and the freedom of having more words and more space to develop those themes I have found it quite quite a challenge I edit picture books which is amazing and that's that's really nice but um actually sitting down and writing a picture book I find quite quite difficult so I think I'll be focusing on the older fiction for now at least and because this book is published it probably means there's another one in process somewhere because uh, they take a long time to produce so are you writing or are you editing something at the moment um so just finished writing actually something else which is still it's got an element of mythology in it but it's actually set in the present day mm. but of course we've got the delights of splinter hall to be reading through and enjoying first of all so thank you so much for talking to me today katie oh, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me in the reading corner is presented by nikki gamble and produced by alison hughes this episode is generously sponsored by anderson press if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.